welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today is a fun day for me. Many of you um, have said very humbly that I've served as a mentor to some of you, and um, I think that it is only a good mentor can be a good mentor if they're also a mentee. And today we have on the show someone that I consider my mentor, someone that has been a very, very dear friend of mine, someone that I call my brother. Um, we have Paul Kemp with us today on the podcast. Paul, welcome and thank you for being part of the conversation today. Thank you, Michael. Good to be part of it. Yes. So, Paul, you're the founder of City and Provincial, a wonderful development company in the UK. You're the owner of Viva Sotheby's International Realty. You're the founder of Tallyard Studios. We're going to be talking about all of that in this conversation. But tell me, how did you actually get started? Because I know you don't sleep, but tell me how you got started in your career. Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> really, uh... I think it all started with actually not knowing what I wanted to do after really doing a law degree in London many, many years ago. And <clears throat> that really led to me uh, either doing nothing or going to law school. Because <laughs> all, my, all my friends and contemporaries were going to law school. And whilst I didn't particularly want to be a lawyer, I thought actually it was going to be pretty rubbish actually sitting at home on my own so I decided to do the part twos um, in Lancaster Gate at the time in London and when the, when those were completed then again I had a choice of either not knowing what I was going to do or doing another two years to get fully qualified um, as a lawyer in London so I kind of chose to do the, uh, the qualification route uh, again not because I had any huge desire to be a lawyer but because I didn't really know what to do if I wasn't doing that so it was kind of a, a decision that that came about through really not really having a clear path and um, what was quite interesting in the two years that it took for me to do my formal training to get fully qualified it reinforced my view that I never wanted to be a practicing lawyer um, <laughs> as, as it's, it just wasn't for me. But the very interesting thing about doing those two years for me was that it did point me to the path that I've now followed for the last 30 years, which was fundamentally a property play. So I used to have a very good relationship with the conveyancing partner. Uh, conveyancing is, is just trading in, in property, I guess. I don't know, it's the same phrase in the States, sure. but it's a lawyer, a lawyer in real estate, effectively. <clears throat> and um, he, he, we were acting, or the firm that, that I was working with, were acting for a number of development clients in London. And it was quite interesting. I was one of my very important uh, roles was, apart from making tea and photocopying, was actually doing the bills, which no one else wanted to do. So the the junior had to do this this rubbish. So one day we were doing a bill. And we, we were acting for this real estate guy. And, and I saw the, I couldn't really understand the bill because it was purchased for X and then literally on the same bill, sold for X times 10. And it was just like, how can that be possible? How can you buy something and then suddenly like turn it? 
<clears throat> you know, before you've even completed. So I spoke to the property partner and he explained to me the fundamentals of kind of property dealing and trading in London. So it was a kind of light bulb moment. And I thought, wow, that sounds far better than slogging away in a solicitor's <laughs> office for eight hours a day on a pittance of a wage. So I decided the day I qualified, and much to the annoyance of my employers at the time, that uh, that was it. So um, I, gave, I gave my notice in, I took six months off, and I basically tried to ingratiate myself with as many <clears throat> real estate agents in London as possible in the vague hope of getting a deal. And really by luck, more than any kind of judgment, uh, a real estate agent who I would probably say was not entirely straightforward. Um, he, he actually uh, introduced me to a deal. I then borrowed some money from my parents, actually, um, which was really, really stressful because they, they actually put up <clears throat> their small farm in South Wales wow. as collateral. So it was kind of, if I mess this up, then they're going to lose their farm. So it was a very, very stressful first transaction. And fortunately, and again, more by luck than judgment, we actually made some money on it remarkably. And that really was the start. So that was kind of 25, 30 years ago. So we, we didn't have any capital. So we, we literally reinvested all monies that we, uh, that, that we obtained um, from, from property trading into the next and bigger deal. And eventually, yeah, over a period of many years, this transformed into doing not just residential deals, but more commercial deals in the city. Um, and, and, it, and it went from there, really. So it was, a, it was a kind of journey over many, many years. But, you know, fundamentally, I think we've built a business now that is capable of doing any size of transaction. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's, been, it's been an interesting journey and still is, by the way. That is actually an extraordinary story, and I've known you for such a long time, and I don't think I knew quite the details of that very humble beginning, because what you've built now has been so incredible, Paul. And you know what's really interesting to me is that I know you very well, I know your company very well, and your team members, and what I think is really interesting is the spirit that you've developed in your company. Your core team has literally been with you for decades. What's the secret that you've done to retain the loyalty of your team? There's so, you know, our, our business, our real estate business is all about really the, the, the next best thing and the talent goes to the shiny object and somebody else goes and promises just 10% more on something and, and, and you leave and you have to start from scratch. And you know, your team has stuck with you and your team has built this company with you. What's that secret? Because that's so rare. Well, I mean, they obviously like pain. Um, to begin with, I guess. <laughs> um, kind of slightly kind of masochistic, I guess. But no, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, every business is all about the people. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have been introduced or be surrounded by incredibly loyal people um, over, over the years. And I suppose, you know, how do you, <clears throat> how do you ensure you have loyalty? You, you, I think you ensure you have loyalty by treating people correctly, 
we are a totally flat organization. There's no hierarchy. No one has to knock on my door to come in. Um, we all take the mickey out of each other remorselessly. Um, <clears throat> and we have a good time. I, I think that's really fundamental. We work really hard, but actually we play very hard too. And I, I think it's fundamental. If you have an amazing fun atmosphere <clears throat> with you know people expected to work really hard but actually not following a rule book so you know that if they want to get in at 10 or 11 and, and leave at four i don't really care what hours they do on the basis that they've done their work and, and yes. it's that kind of i think it's that kind of flexibility that we give to people and also the fact that we treat you know we treat people well these these people are my friends you know we've worked with them for in some cases 15 20 years and you know it's if you treat people correctly they'll kind of stick with you i think well i think you've also treated them like family and you know and obviously me included uh where you've been incredibly generous to those around you and i think that of course builds such incredible loyalty in 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 wanting to make sure that the effort is put in so that you know your success they somehow feel a small part of so i think that's a beautiful thing that you and your wife susie have sort of built with your culture and your business that really extends to to you really having your core group of of people become an extension of your family yeah i mean i think i think it's important that you know city and provincial was set up as you know a family business and has remained so throughout the last 30 years so you know there are <clears throat> there are no great um uh pyramids <clears throat> in this company it's flat we are probably the most politically incorrect company in the uk <laughs> um, and, well, and don't, actually, don't limit yourself paul even more than beyond the uk come on now <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I but i mean you know we have no time for this wave of political correctness that swept the world in the last 10 or 15 years. It really is absolute garbage. And that's fine because I own my own business. I'm reliant really on just the people that work with me and they are equally of the same view. So we, we you know, there is no way like in a big corporate structure, you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, even though it's not meant with any offense and it's curtains, you know? Right. I mean, here is very different. It's a, a very open um, kind of discussion that we have on all sorts of different things. And, you know, I have to say that I could never work for, you know, a corporate because, it, you know, having fun at work <clears throat> and that almost, you know, reflects being pretty sometimes not being as politically correct as, as some, some people would like you to be is part of the fun and, and the reason why people stick around. You certainly keep it fun, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. But let me ask you, you actually, you started talking about some of the commercial stuff that you've done, but you've also done some amazing residential properties as well. Very recently, you sold a uh, 1,000 square meter plus home in central London. You sold a 1,500 plus square meter home in Mallorca. In this economy, it's so rare to really have those incredible ultra luxury properties 
finding the right buyer. That buyer is so finite in these in in this current economic uh, environment that we're living in. How do you focus on that? How do you find the right buyers for those ultra luxury properties throughout Europe, especially that you're focused on? Well, <clears throat> I think that you know you. you I'm I'm not really a spreadsheet kind of guy. Fortunately, um, I do have some spreadsheet kind of focused people that work with me that <clears throat> that rein me in occasionally. But I mean, fundamentally, I'm I'm someone who, if I feel that the deal is something which I think I can make work, I will do it. And even if the spreadsheet says no, <clears throat> I will still do it. And there is a myriad of examples where. Some of my colleagues who are very spreadsheet orientated said, you're crazy to do this. And some of those deals have been the best deals we've ever done. So I think that, you know, for me, it's a very kind of personal thing. I, <clears throat> pardon me, I, um, I focus on stuff that interests me um, and that I believe in fundamentally. And then it's, it's following your gut. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And then for the delivery of it, you just have to focus on creating the very, very best um, product that possibly exists at that current time. So for me, you know, a house, you know, is defined very much by its, the quality of its finishes and the fact that you, you can always tell whether someone, the developer has actually just knocked out the development or whether they've really sat down and agonized and thought about every minute point to get it absolutely as right as it can be. And that's kind of what I do on, on, on the, the top end super prime residential because clients are not, are not stupid. You know, they know if you go to two identical houses, they will know which one has had the focus on that house in terms of detail and finishes. Um, and, it, and, and it's obvious to, to top end buyers. They are, you know, a very select group of people who are always, pretty much always, super successful in what they do anyway, and they can see quality uh, and, and thought. And you know, that's a really good point, because when you start talking about that um, super prime property market, where that buyer is a global buyer, but it's a very small pool of buyers that are looking at something that, you know, 15 million euros plus, um, and so, to really have that quality in the home in Mallorca that we're making reference to, I have the privilege of actually seeing you build this from the ground up, literally, when it was just a hole in the ground. And I must say, I see properties every single day of my life around the world. And I must say that that property that you built was probably one of the best properties I've ever seen. And it was, to your point, the thought process that came behind it. And you've built many, many homes and you've done it for many, many decades. And the idea of every thought process that was put behind it, the positioning of the house, the view, the wow factor, and how you actually envisioned somebody living there. Um, it was really extraordinary to see that. And then to really have that message be able to so flawlessly go and 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 sort of be um, interpreted for that buyer was something that I thought was done so incredibly well. 
So kudos to you on that. And, and, and really it was the fact that in, again, in this market, it just really sold so quickly. So I thought it was a, a great project. Yeah, no, we, I mean, I, it was certainly one of, one of probably the best, the best kind of top end house that I've ever done. Um, because, you know, you have to be passionate about these things. They don't Absolutely. just happen, you know, and, and we were very hands on and I made it quite clear to the contractors what the quality and the standard, my standards were. And in fact, the very first couple of months, they did something which were, you know, which was okay, but it just wasn't top end. So I got them to tear it down and I said, you know, guys, this is how it's going to be for the whole project. So either do it correctly on day one, or we're going to spend your life pulling stuff down and, and you guys losing serious money as a contractor. And actually, they, to be fair to them, they took it on board 100%. They and sure did. Delivered, you know, delivered an, an amazing end, end result with, with us taking very keen interest along the way. Now, it was, a, it was a great project to sort of go through that and sort of see it in all its different levels. So that was really, really wonderful. I, I want to ask you about City and Provincial. I want to ask you about um, your, your vision, really. And I know that your son, Callum, worked with you at the company for a while. He's now working on, with his, uh, on his own on other um, real estate-related projects. But was that the focus of your succession planning? with the company? Well, I think it's always difficult with um, children to, uh, to try and kind of leave them into your business, to be, to be quite honest with you. Either they are, you know, e either they're passionate about the business or they're not. I mean, the last thing I wanted were, were children who didn't work really hard, you know. And fortunately, you know, we've got two kids and both work exceptionally hard. One being my son, Callum, who has worked in the business for three, three years. And then my daughter, Tiggy, who is a singer-songwriter, so not at all interested in the business, actually. But um, in their own way, completely the same work ethic. So, you know, as a parent, that really is, you know, one of, one of the things I, I, I thank whoever's up there every day <laughs> because... The last thing you want is some kind of waster of a kid of yours, you know, just taking the money and, and, and all the rest of it. And it's just, it, and it's, it's very heartening that we have two kids who have a work ethic that is similar to me. So that's just luck, luck of the draw, I guess. And, and yeah, maybe a bit of a, luck, a bit of upbringing along the way, but um, <laughs> you know, Callum, yeah. I mean, when Callum started, it, it's always difficult actually when you're, you know, when your son or daughter joins, the company because first I mean it, it was less difficult for us because this has always been a family company and everyone that works with me here they one of the reasons they joined was because it was a family company to have your son join or your daughter join is kind of <clears throat> yeah it's part of the family so it wasn't it wasn't I didn't have problems from people internally um, I did find it slightly difficult occasionally um with Callum because sometimes he would react in a way that I knew he wouldn't um if he was working for a third party company so uh but anyway he you know what what's been great is that he actually matured hugely during the process 
and then was poached by an independent company, you know, which was, and actually, you know, I was really happy about that because I think it'll give him <clears throat> a different perspective. Sure. And he's got to work now, he's got to work now with an American fund that's funding that, that business. And it's a very, very different situation to what he had here. So great experience and I'm delighted. And he's doing really well, actually. It's, he's doing a great job. So um, it's all been, uh, you know, it's all worked out really well. I hope <clears throat> at some stage, maybe he'll come back in five years, but we'll see, you know, it's not mandatory. Sure, of course. You know, and, and I've had the great privilege of being around your children as well and, and really seeing how they both have grown into their careers. And it's, it's amazing, you know, with Callum, Callum has such a great real estate mind and, um, you know, he's going to do some amazing things in the world for sure. Um, and of course, had a great training ground with, uh, with you. Um, so it's really just wonderful from uh, just seeing it from my perspective. I, you know, I've known Callum since I think he was 16 um, to really sort of see how he's grown over the last, uh, um, you know, decade or so, just, just, uh, just short of that. Uh, and really sort of see what his, uh, what his business mind has been. So it's really been wonderful to see that also from my perspective. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. I mean, it's, it's really quite interesting from mine and Susie's perspective, you know, having one, one very business-orientated child in Cullum and then another one who's a total uh, a creative. And, and it's, uh, I mean, it's actually great to have, you know, that, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind balance. of balance between between them because actually they both learn from each other. Absolutely, much. yes, so, I witnessed that firsthand. So yes, it's so yes, true. Yeah. It's so true. Now, Paul, you also own the Sotheby's International Realty franchise for Greater Spain. You started in the Balearics with uh, Mallorca, as we've spoken about, Menorca, Formentera, and Ibiza. And since then, you've purchased other territories. You opened uh, an office in Madrid and other key cities. Was the initial thought of having the brand be part of the, your own distribution network for your own inventory? Did you want to add the brokerage component to your development side with city and provincial? What was the thought process behind that? Well, I'd like to say there was a huge thought process and, uh, and uh, you know, an investigation as to whether we should do it. But actually, it was on a whim. Um, okay, it was, fair enough. It, it was introduced to, to me by my Spanish accountant and said, are you interested in, in this kind of real estate Sotheby's brand? And I just thought, actually, I know nothing about being a, you know, a real estate agent or realtor, I think, as they call them in the States. But... I thought actually it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic brand, <clears throat> you know, one of the world brands actually. So I thought actually, you know, this could be quite interesting. What I didn't realize at the time was how totally different it is from what I'd been doing for the previous 20, 25 years. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of client facing, which obviously my, this business definitely is not, thank God. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's a very different mentality that you have to have as a, as a real estate um, broker. And, you know, I'm not, I, it's been a great experience with Sotheby's. It's been a lot 
a lot harder starting this business from scratch than I, I had anticipated. Um, but it's been a good journey. I've met some amazing people. Um, I think that, you know, what we're seeing in Spain at the moment is, is the golden visa. So there are lots of, there are lot, lots of people from all over the world, from South America, all Spanish speaking territories actually, um, from China, um, all wanting to come to Spain, not only because of the obvious weather uh, benefits, but actually more importantly, to <clears throat> it gives them a bolt hole away from um, you know countries that perhaps have issues that uh, you know l have an uncertain future. So it's been it's been really good. Uh, it's, I've been very fortunate to have the most amazing uh, managing director actually. Uh, a lady called Alejandra Vanoli, um, and she has really built a great business um, throughout the Balearics and Madrid and further afield now. We've just acquired the Canary Islands as well, and ultimately our, our goal is to purchase the whole of uh, Spain um, under the Sotheby's banner um, and, and to develop you know, to develop that, uh, that franchise. So it's been, a, it's been a hard work actually, and very different to what I do in my day job, but it's also, it, it's been very rewarding on, on a number of other uh, reasons as well. And you know, and you've been so clever also about the marketing with the Sotheby's brand in Spain. Um, I know that you have uh, sponsored the Rafa Nadal golf tournament uh, you actually started it with the Balearics and then actually Sotheby's Corporate took over that sponsorship because it was so successful. And then you were also one of the main sponsors of the Copa del Rey, which is the King Sailing Regatta in Spain. And you've been so clever about the marketing that you've done under the Sotheby's um, international realty name in Spain to be able to have really global exposure with some of the things that you've aligned yourself with. Tell me a little bit about how that started because I thought that was so clever, the way that you've actually done this, where you really saw an opportunity to align yourself with other brands uh, that were very Spanish in nature, like Rafa Nadal, the number one tennis player in the world. So, uh, and obviously the King of Spain. How did these come about? How did you sort of even sort of think about this? I thought that was just incredible the way you've done this. Well, when we, when we started um, the, the Sotheby's franchise in, in the Balearics, it was quite clear to me that actually there was very little, there obviously had been no presence of Sotheby's in, in that region. And we were competing against people like ENV and other agencies that had been on the island for over 30 years. So, you know, they had real presence um, on the island and, and had that kind of presence for many years. So <clears throat> we are not just, and, and, and there's a big German contingent as well in Mallorca as well, which who were... Sure instinctively going to go to a kind of German-based um, agent. So there were challenge, real challenges there. And, and we, we, Alejandro and I took a view that the only way for us to significantly increase our profile was actually to align ourselves with really amazing people in the Balearics in Spain 
and amazing events. So hence the fact, um, you know, the Rafa Nadal um, uh, sponsorship, which was, which was great. I mean, Alejandra very, very fortunately knew Rafa and, and also Rafa's sister who's delightful. And you know that that's been such a such a fun sponsorship actually, and 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 so valuable for us because it's given us huge exposure um, in the press uh, and and further beyond. And that was then kind of further um, followed by the Copa del Rey, which you, you mentioned as well. The Copa del Rey is the premier regatta in the Mediterranean, and and. It's very special on a number of levels, but particularly because the King of Spain actually does uh, come and compete that week um, in Palma uh, with his boat and his crew. And, you know, there is huge exposure. And it's not just Spanish exposure. This is worldwide exposure. Absolutely it is. And we've been, you know, we've been very fortunate that <clears throat> we've, you know, we've been part of the, those, the, the, that sponsorship package for the last five years and in fact just signed a renewal for another five years so you know it's and again lots of fun i think it's got to be sponsorship has to be there has to be a purpose to do it but equally you know you have to get some fun and satisfaction out of it along the way and i've been hugely fortunate to be able to sail on the king of spain's boat a number of times as a as a special guest and you know these kind of things are you know one-off things you, you can't buy these things these are these are unique opportunities so you know as i said before you know sotheby's you know has been a journey for sure but it's it's had a lot of very good things along the way and we're now in a, a very strong position to move forward paul i see a theme here work hard play hard <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, unless you get satisfaction and have a good time in your life, there, there's just absolutely no point in working really hard and trying to accumulate wealth if you, if you, if you can't enjoy it along the way. It's, it's super important. I think that's the greatest lesson right there. So, yeah. I, uh, absolutely. And listen, and you do it well. <laughs> Trust me, you do that very well. <laughs> Listen, uh, yeah, we've, we've had some fun times along the way. We yeah, certainly have, uh, and continue yeah. to, hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, Paul, you've also built yet another business that's completely unrelated to real estate at all. So you've built City and Provincial. you built the Sotheby's International Realty brand in Spain. And you built another business in the music industry. Tell me a little bit about Talyard Studios. Okay, I mean, Tar Yard Studios really came about again through, it wasn't, I'd like to say it was a kind of well thought out strategic plan, but um, regrettably not. We, we'd actually bought this estate in uh, King's Cross, in just literally, which is pretty much central London now, wasn't at the time. Um, and, you know, we had about 100, I don't know, 105, 110,000 square feet, most of it was empty. I bought it for a very specific property play, um, which was a breakup type situation. So it was nothing particularly clever about it, but um, we felt that we could do quite well financially out of it. And then lo and behold, between exchange and completion, uh, Lehman's happened. So, right. so suddenly the world changed literally overnight, as a lot of people that will be listening to this will, will know. Sure. And 
you, you know, suddenly we were left with really a white elephant. It was, you know, a, a large piece of central London property that no one wanted to rent, no one wanted to even occupy, even for free. And, you know, we were looking at significant vacant costs and nowhere to go on it in the conventional property world. <clears throat> so very, very fortunately, about five years before, um, again, going back to the fun theme, I'd invested some money in, uh, in three music guys who used to be in a band, were signed, were quite successful actually, called Ultra. And um, I, they were looking for some investment. They got, they, got, um, they got canned by the label for the second time and they decided to set up a small production company in West London. And I was introduced to them by actually by an agent who was just a friend of one of the um, well, yeah, one of the guys there. So I met them and I thought actually these guys are such such nice guys, super cool. Yeah, I'm going to invest some money into this <clears throat> um, for no for no return, but just to have a good time. And you know, just to, you know, I've always loved music, and I thought this is a perfect way of finding out a bit more about the music industry. Um, and, and, you know, it's going to be a good journey. And for five years, it was a great journey. Um, it completely, um, my, my initial thoughts that this is never going to make a penny. Yes, were totally correct. It didn't. But, <laughs> yeah, but we had a great time along the way. But what was remarkable um, was that when we had all these problems with this building in King's Cross, I suddenly spoke to one of the guys and said, look, I cannot give this space away in the property world. How about we try to do some kind of music studio kind of thing, not knowing what the hell that was. And, and literally um, one of them came up and spent six months in, you know, in, in one of the many buildings that were vacant. And he literally rang his little black book of people that he'd met in the industry in the last 20 years. And lo and behold, we had 10 very, uh, very amazing artists, uh, writers and composers who decided to give us a go. And you, know, you have to bear in mind at the time, this estate was a pretty dismal place. So I'll always be very grateful for these guys for believing us because there was nothing there. I mean, there was no community there. There was actually nothing there at all. And Suddenly, so we decided to do, I said to um, Nick, one of the guys, and Michael, the other music guy, I said, right, if you can get me 10 people who will commit to a lease, we will build them the most amazing music studios they've ever seen. And this, and this kind of coincided with the music industry really changing from the old format of huge, great studios like Abbey Road and Air Studios to the technology allowed much smaller studios where people could literally record an A to Z of in, in a tiny studio, so long as it was a, a, yeah, acoustically properly separated, et cetera, et cetera. So we actually said to these guys, look, we're gonna build you amazing studios and you're gonna build them with us. You're gonna design them with us so that we can give you exactly what you want. So it's gonna be a bespoke studio. Every studio is bespoke. You choose the, the, the finishes, how you want the studio to sound and look, and that's so we did the first 10 and uh you know it was it, it was it was it was great i mean it was still it was still a, a really dire grim place but actually <clears throat> they started then you know working with their 
colleagues, etc. So their colleagues came up and they would say, well, it's a pretty crap place, but actually it's quite cool. So, <laughs> you, you know, and that was the beginning of it. So, and then suddenly, you know, we had people saying, actually, you know, can you build me a bespoke studio? And literally, so our next phase was like 20 studios. And then there was a tipping point where <clears throat> we had a, a music manager called Joe Oakley, who came up with his music lawyer. And it was a bit of a game changer for us because Joe was manager of the year over here at the time, and he had a number of, a number of bands, well-known bands. So he came up, we built him an absolutely amazing office. And then he, you know, he brought all his bands up. So, uh, you know, it was Chasing Status, it was Knife Party, it was all sorts of people. And suddenly we had this buzz. And for the first time ever then, people were then contacting us that they wanted to be at Talyard because they knew it was a pretty special place. And our, one of our other USPs on Talyard is, is that we curate every single occupier. So, you know, you can't get in with a check on its own. You have to be able to bring something more than a check to the community. And actually, that's where you can build an amazing community of like-minded people. And that's what we've done. Which is an incredible model, Paul. I mean, I've sort of seen it from the periphery and really seeing what you have built with your partners in this. And I got to tell you, it's extraordinary. And, you know, you had people like Mark Ronson come into your studios. You had really global, global names come into something where, you know, you're, you're, you're a property guy and now you're, you're a music guy. It was really, the trajectory has been terrific. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that music is a hell of a lot more interesting than property. <laughs> and again, it's fun. Yeah, I get a lot more. Um, I spend far too much time up there, really, but I love it. And I love meeting the artists and the composers and the writers and whatever. So and I kind of know pretty much everyone there. It's, you know, there are now we've now got over 100 studios. Wow. Um, we've got Beats One is up there. Uh, we've we've got a whole host of you know we've we've got uh, uh, Gallagher's we've just done Gallagher's studio. You, it's you know, amazing. I mean, there, there there is an amazing group of people there, and you know it's again it's it's a community that we've built, which you know we're actually really proud of. Actually, you know it's we don't blow our own trumpet really at all, but that's something that we built from scratch which is now kind of acknowledged as one of the leading music hubs in the world, if, if not the leading one in the world. Extraordinary. So, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm really pleased about that. But again, you know, it came, the one thing I've learned uh, in my life generally is that you can do all the right things. You can have passion, you can have enthusiasm, you can have a work ethic, but you always need that little tiny bit of luck, you know, and that's what we had. You know, and, and I think anyone who <clears throat> says they've achieved stuff without luck, a little bit of luck, is probably not telling the truth. I would agree with that a million percent. A million percent. So, Paul, I want you to think about this next question. You have had success in development, in brokerage, in the music industry, in various businesses. I want you to tell me the greatest lesson that you learned from one of your failures. Uh, well, I think there are a couple of lessons I've learned. One is to be humble 
um, never to shout about your successes, but to quietly, you know, to quietly go about your business. Um, and, and that's a very important lesson, I think. I, I, nothing annoys me more when you've got people, you know, shouting how wonderful they are when actually if you look behind the curtain they've actually achieved relatively little yes, um, yes. so yeah and that happens all the time which you know which is great for me it, because i just have a little kind of smile to myself thinking well you know this is brilliant because these guys are just you, you know re really low down the scale here but they they they, they, they you know they, they think they've they're amazing which they're not so, um, and I think you always have to learn from your mistakes because we, we all make them and, and unfortunately pretty constantly. And I think the, you know, the clever person is someone who makes a mistake, puts his hand up, acknowledges that he's got it wrong, but most importantly of all, he learns from it and not to do it again. Because if you don't learn from your mistakes, you are an idiot, you know. That's, that's, that's <laughs> Let's let's break it down a little further. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's, it's, it's kind, of, kind of how it is, you know. Yeah. No, I I, I I totally get that. I totally get that. So is the but is there a story in particular that you can think about that you learned a lesson of either that humility or that lesson of well, you know, it's sort of like I'm never going to do that again. Um, is there anything in particular that you can think of? Well, well, unfortunately, there are a few, but, um, you know, there was one particular property transaction that, again, actually, it was, it was quite interesting because it, on the spreadsheet, it looked amazing. And um, I, I, I did genuinely have my, that my gut was telling me that it actually wasn't a great deal. And mm. I just thought, I just was leaving my own press and thought, actually, you know what, we've done some great deals recently. This is going to be a walk in the park. And... It was a horrendous <clears throat> disaster property that lost so much money, but actually it probably saved me a huge amount of money in the future because it's something I'll never forget. And, you know, and yeah, I kind of put my hands up as well and said, God, this is like the, one of the major errors of the last 10 years I've made because I was beginning to believe my own press and that was very, very dangerous. So you never want to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I think that was the thing that you had said prior of really following your gut. And here was an example of something that looked great on paper, but something didn't sit right. And you went with what was on paper. So I think that's really interesting is always follow your gut. Yeah. And also, <clears throat> I think one of the reasons I did it because I thought it would be quite an important deal. And, you know, I'd get a lot of people saying how, how great I was and stuff. And you know, it was, and nothing could have been further from the truth. It was just, you know, it's a salutary lesson of, you know, just go with what you feel and what right. you believe in. Right. So, Paul, listen, you have built a really a great empire. And, you know, you've, you are, you're tireless. You work seven days a week. You know, you and I speak on the weekends and you're always in your office you are, I mean, your work ethic is, is beyond. What is the next goal for you in business? You've accomplished quite a lot. Well, I think that um, I'm really passionate about Talyard um, Studios and Talyard London. We have just um, started uh, another major scheme in the north 
of England that probably no one of your listeners will have ever heard of, but it's in a place called Wakefield. It's, um, it's next to <clears throat> actually a world famous gallery called the Hepworth Wakefield. Um, okay. And, and you know, we're going to do what we are branded a tile yard north. So that's going to be our north of the UK. Oh, that's exciting. That's, uh, that's, it is very exciting. It's uh, old disused mill, mill buildings uh, on, on a river, very attractive, potentially completely dilapidated, and we have to create a community out of nothing. Which it's I your find specialty. It's your specialty. Indeed. But I, I, you know, I think it should, should be easier there than, than what we did at Tile Yard London because, you know, we have this amazing gallery literally next door. And, you know, I, I, I'm just very excited about the project. It's going to be tough. And, you know, this is not going to be a quick project. Um, there's all sorts of difficulties. Uh, but we, you know, it's something that I feel quite passionate about. And, you know, we want to we want to deliver something really special in the north as well um, as as we have done in in, in London. So that's extraordinary. Yeah, it sounds exciting. And what with you know what with the local what, what with the general election results recently? Sure. Um, which you know is is a great result for UK PLC. Um, that's you know th th there's a real there's a real kind of positivity now in the UK that we have managed to get through the last three and a half years of quagmire you know stuck in this ridiculous brexit debate <clears throat> and we have to move on and i think there's this acknowledgement in the country that actually we've, we've had enough of brexit yes. you know, I, you know, I i personally voted to stay but i acknowledge that three and a half years later we just have to have closure on it because otherwise we are never going to move forward so I'm kind of really happy that we've got now a strong government that's business faith orientated and, and one that actually wants to really support the rest of the country because they, you know, I know that Boris is going to be putting a lot of money into uh, a lot of initiatives and money and support and help into the, the northern regions of the country. And, and quite coincidentally, that's exactly where we've just started our development. So, you know, it's, again, a bit of luck along the way is always, always necessary. And listen, and Brexit was not just related to the UK, that's for sure. It certainly did affect real estate and, and, and global decisions uh, around the world, um, not just in Europe. But, you know, everyone sort of felt the effects of that. So it is a really wonderful thing to have resolution on that for all concerned. Um, but I want to just wrap up with one final question, Paul. And it's something that, you know, I've, uh, I asked this question of some of my guests and especially someone who has accomplished so much like yourself. What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, gosh, I think, <clears throat> I, um, I, think uh, I think my legacy, you, you know, has to be having an amazing family, actually. Um, an amazing wife, Susie, and two incredible children who I absolutely adore and who we spend a huge amount of time with. I mean, and, and actually, you know, it is relevant to the question because without being successful in the various fields that we've discussed today, I would not have had the time to take, th you know, three months off every summer um, and in Mallorca and spend it with my, my kids and wife. So, 
you know, it's, it's given me, you know, what I've done, the legacy is, I guess, having freedom to, to do what you want, mm. to enjoy your life, but also, you know, to work incredibly hard when you're not having that fun. So I, I think that to me, I mean, I've, I've got no aspirate, I, you know, I would like to think that Callum and I'd like to think that my, my senior director here that's worked with me for 15, 16 years, Chris Lovegrove, I'd like to think that they will continue on with City and Provincial and build that business. Um, personally, I'm never going to retire, but, uh, you know, maybe take it a little bit lighter um, <laughs> at, at some stage in the future, maybe just five days a week or maybe six or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, the legacy must be um, my, my, my family, uh, genuinely. And you certainly have accomplished that. And Paul, I must say, I started this by saying that you are one of my mentors and, and, and you are, you're one of my dearest friends, you're my brother. And I've learned so much from you and I'm very appreciative of all of your generosity and your lessons and you've um, really have been my extended family and you've opened your family up to me and, and I'm very close to your children and your wife and, and you obviously, and you really have been such a powerful figure in my life. And I thank you for that. And, and, and I thank you for spending time with me today with such a great and candid conversation. No, not at all. It's always, always pleasure to speak to you, Michael, and always fun. So uh, I, I hope I don't bore too many of your listeners, that's all. <laughs> we'll have to live with it if we did. No, you were very well, inspirational, indeed. and I thank you. Yeah, that's their problem, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for joining Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you all.